the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Hello, I'm Pamela Morales, the Communications Officer at the Museum of South Texas History. The Museum of South Texas History has a lot of history to present, but sometimes it's nice to hear from someone who lived it. That's why I'm starting this podcast, Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm excited to share the stories of locals who experienced or know the history of our region. The first season is about the lost empires, the once powerful produce industry in the Rio Grande Valley. You'll hear a first-hand perspective from Neil Cassidy, who worked during the peak of the fresh produce industry. Welcome to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande, and with me is Neil. Hi, Pamela. Thanks for inviting me to participate in this project. I'm really excited about sharing your story, so let's just get to the basics. How did you get involved in marketing the fresh produce of the Rio Grande Valley? Uh, in 1975, I was working for an international produce brokerage company in Toronto, Ontario, and during my time there, I had enjoyed selling produce to the local trade for sh from shippers in the uh, Rio Grande Valley. I had developed a particularly close relationship with the staff at Griffin and Brand in McAllen, and I took pride in representing them in their, their quality line of produce. So when you were in Toronto selling produce to the local trade shippers in the Rio Grande Valley, what were your job duties? What did that entail? It's kind of funny. It, it was a time before the internet or even fax machines. So all communication was verbal over the telephone. From our office in the Ontario Food Terminal at 6 a.m., we began to call shippers of fresh produce in the Eastern time zone for price quotations on their products. Between the calls to shippers, we called the wholesalers and retail chain buying offices in Toronto and Interior, Ontario, to try to sell them the products for which we had quotations. At 8 a.m., we started to collect quotes from shippers in the central time zone, including the Rio Grande Valley. At 9 a.m., the phone action heated up. We were calling the Pacific time zone shippers and fielding calls from the customers who had their inventories and projected sales for the next week. They were buying produce that would not arrive for several days and seeking to negotiate the best prices. We stayed on the phone all day during this time until 6 or 7 p.m. I loved the action. Most of the time I had a phone on each ear and one or two lines on hold. It was nonstop stress. In order to do a good job, I had to understand the operations of both the shippers and the distributors. Intelligence gathering was part of the job. We had, what were next week's crop conditions? Were, what large ads were chain stores planning? Everything was time sensitive. Markets are volatile. 
However, my career interests were in becoming a shipping point salesman rather than a destination broker. Why is that? What was the change for you? Produce brokers are not tied to either shipping point production system or the receiving point distribution system. They are true middlemen. They arrange deals between the two groups that actually do something productive. My interests gravitated towards shipping point. My father had been an Arkansas farm boy before he became a soldier, and his father had been a grower and packer of fresh peaches. Maybe that influenced my preference. I had seen large vegetable growing and packing operations on visits to California and Florida. I was intrigued by the entire process of crop planning, farming, harvesting, packing, selling, and shipping. Uh, perhaps because of my military background, I liked the teamwork. There was also an esprit de corps in each company. I admit that I was an adrenaline junkie and, junkie and liked all of the constant adversities that arise in shipping point production. I mentioned my wishes one day in a conversation with Mike Gower of Griffin Brand, and Mike asked me to send a resume. I was not asking him for a chance at a job and thought he was just making a gesture of support. A month or so later, Mike asked me to come to a produce convention to meet the other principals of the company and for an interview. I did not believe my luck. I didn't. It was un as unlikely as a new car lot salesman from a small town being asked to interview for the car manufacturer's national marketing department. And I was not that impressed with my performance at the interview. And I felt that Ophel Brand and Jack Griffin were not impressed either. A lot of us get that impression um, or kind of feel like we didn't do such a great job during the interview, uh, especially if we're being interviewed by someone we admire. What happened after the interview? Some weeks later, Mike Gower called to ask if my wife and I could come to the Valley for a week at Griffin and Brand's expense. We did so. Mike and his wife, Barbara, were gracious hosts. It, I was given a full uh, orientation about the company, and each morning and each afternoon, my wife and I explored the real estate market and the family life features of the Valley. She and I agreed that this was a good place. I took the job, and the family arrived at Miller International Airport on a TIA aircraft on January 1st, 1976. living in Canada, and then you and your family basically moved across the North American continent and into a new culture. How was that change for you and your family? Well, while we were in Toronto, my children were beginning to think of themselves as Canadians and regard my wife and me as Yankees, meaning Americans, okay? As parents, we felt the need to raise our children in an American environment that would they would develop within them an American identity. So did you experience any other cultural shock? Y yes, we needed to adjust. 
Uh, Toronto was a city of two million people with an extremely multicultural population. The Valley did not offer the cultural or entertainment opportunities uh, that we were used to having. However, my wife and I were army brats and were accustomed to adapting to new places in the United States and, and Europe. Uh, also, we were both raised by immigrant German mothers and understood family cultural blending. Uh, I had worked as part of Mexican migrant crews in the laundry business and uh, the cattle business and sugar beet harvest in Colorado uh, during my college days. My wife and I had married and lived in a small town in Colorado with a blended culture. The first real cultural shock, however, was when the grinning plastic wrapped cabezas in the grocery store scared my six-year-old daughter. <laughs> I think that uh, scare. I think that even scared me. Was there uh, any other type, not necessarily cultural shocks, but lifestyle that maybe was completely different? The first thing we had to learn was that football was the unofficial religion of Texas. And we adjusted to the Friday night lights type rituals. Everybody driving on Friday night would listen on the car radio to the games. In those days, Sunday dinner might be at Luby's or at a restaurant in Reynosa. Crossing the border was not even a formal process. We liked the small town atmosphere and the friendly people. We learned the terminology and life ways and just settled in to live. With that, did your job with Griffin and Brand change your perspective in anything particular? After seven years in the in the brokerage business, I had mastered my trade. Uh, yes, it is a fast changing, ever ever fast paced and ever changing and fun. Making a sale was the hard part. A salesman had to know what others hadn't figured out yet or say what others hadn't said. But after making the sale, the business was as its core simple system. A broker had to make the sale, then arrange for delivery of the product to the customer's warehouse by rail or truck or ocean freight or air freight. And so it went every day. Make the sale, arrange the transportation, repeat several times, hopefully. I had imagined that shipping point sales was a more complex process. But as usual, my imagination failed me. In the brokerage business, my mind had become like a pond fisherman who rowed his little boat out 40 feet and cast his line. It knew the fish, the boat, and the weather. At Griffin and Brand, every morning my mind felt as if someone pushed it into a rubber raft, shoved a fishing rod into its hand, and said, Fish and look out for the rapids. It was all rapids. I got to know and respect people in the industry. Uh, farmers are part wizard and part scientist. Their intuition, forged by experience, tells them when and how to employ scientific tools at their disposal. Harvest contractors and, and, and produce packing line foremen are politicians, keeping their labor constituencies happy while still getting the work out of them. Produce warehouse loading foremen were diplomats uh, negotiating with truckers demanding to be loaded right now uh, and tired, surly forklift drivers <laughs> was 
Occasionally, a pushy salesman would call and make impossible demands. That would be me. A good loading foreman remained cool under fire, and all these people worked hard and tried to do the right thing. Uh, yeah, it was for money, but it was also for pride. So what are you doing now? Uh, I retired now and trying to give the public service time to the community that I didn't give during my career, honestly. My mission is to reconnect people, especially children, with nature as a Texas master naturalist, and to reconnect people, again, especially children, with history as an active volunteer at the Museum of South Texas History. And now you're helping with this podcast, which is awesome. Could you give a quick summary of what our listeners should expect for this season? Uh, yeah, I would like to describe the action and the excitement of the peak of the fresh produce industry in the Valley and describe its decline as I saw it. I know a lot of families down here, they were part of that industry, especially with maybe their parents or grandparents. My mother was a migrant along with her siblings, and I was told by my mother that my tia, my aunt, uh, she used to pick melons in Stark County in the late 1970s, maybe the 19, uh, early 1980s. So my tia basically would show up or go places where there was work to do. Yeah, your, your tia and those like her were the bedrock that the fresh produce industry in the valley was built. That group of industrious workers who went where the crops were ready to harvest made the rest of the business possible. They worked hard jobs for long hours. To this day, no computerized machine can do those jobs. Well, thank you, Neil. Um, any last-minute thoughts that you have? Anything else you would like to let our listeners know about? The fresh produce industry was for 80 or 90 years a huge factor in the economy of this valley. It, it has faded to a fraction of its importance, but I don't want people to lose the awareness of its influence on the growth of our valley. It was an exciting and vital time. This episode was produced by me, Pamela Morales, and in collaboration with Lisa Adam, the curator of collections at Most History. Song is Carpa Diem by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about the Lost Empires. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcast app or Google Play. This podcast can also be found on the museum's website, www.mosthistory.org. Thank you for listening to Most History, stories from the Rio Grande.